On our last episode, I spoke to Nikolai J. Nunes, a medical student studying at the University of West Indies on the global health workforce, primary health care, and universal health coverage. As an IFMSA leader for Jamaica, Nikolai has a world of experiences from his past. In our discussion, he contrasted the differences between primary health care and universal health coverage. He highlighted the various systems countries have come up with to deal with the pandemic and provided insight on the future once the pandemic is over. If you haven't listened to episode 8, please do so, and if you have, do send in your feedback. This podcast is about connecting us both and making our interactions as speaker and listener more meaningful. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to Hussein Ali Nakwi. He is presently a second-year undergraduate student at the University of Waterloo studying health studies. His education has been imperative in shaping his healthcare interests and further cultivated his skillets. He has worked as a health analyst, provided a range of policy and planning support to multiple stakeholders, such as long-term care homes, clinics, and vulnerable populations. He is an active volunteer at long-term care homes, works in medical design and innovation, mentors children of at-risk populations, provides tutoring and facilitates support groups for brain injury survivors. Other ex- experiences include mental health app development, cyberbullying prevention, and extracurriculars in school. All of these experiences have only added to Hussein's interests in healthcare and taught him how important it is to consider multifaceted approaches in cultivating productive healthcare discussions. He is also the founder and CEO of Lising Healthcare Podcasts, a series that focuses on immediate and prominent healthcare issues. Everyone, please put your hands together for Hussein Ali Nakwi. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on this episode to speak about the role of virtual care in telemedicine. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so Hussein, the first question I have for you is, what is virtual care? I know Ontario is implementing it, and how does it differ to telemedicine? Well, traditionally, what we always see virtual care as is a form of consultation, um, where a doctor and a patient um, would sit together and discuss their healthcare issues. Um, it doesn't necessarily involve a clinical uh, component. So, if I were to use a metaphor, it wouldn't mean uh, picking up a stethoscope. It would just mean a doctor and a patient having a conversation. That's traditionally what we've always seen virtual care as. And that's to, and, and especially during COVID-19 and how Ontario's uh, doing it recently, that's how virtual care is observed. Telemedicine, on the other hand, is primarily more focused on clinical services, uh, which are done remotely. So, for example, you'd have a physician sitting behind their computer and a, doc- and a patient uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away and they would be experiencing uh, those clinical services that are provided by the by that physician uh, remotely. So it, that those clinical services could be provided by by a range and a team of clinicians on the patients, and or what we're starting to see more more recently now is technology uh, being used to perform many medical tasks. Uh, absolutely, and so uh, the first pioneer of virtual care was Dr. Maxwell. And uh, how did he use, or how did he advance telemedicine or virtual care? Well, a lot of his work was um, over the phone. 
Um, he did virtual care by calling people and having remote consultations with his patients. And I think that was a great step um, in just advancing and better connecting and increasing accessibility to healthcare for many patients who are, who are either in remote communities or just don't have access or can't travel to a doctor's office. And I think that work really did lay the groundwork, the framework and the groundwork for us to now take that over and implement it into our mass and more densely populated communities. For sure. And so um, OTN, that stands for the Ontario Telemedicine Network. Telemedicine Network. And so it offers uh, the services free for patients. Mm -hmm. And what's the benefit of that? Do you think it's sufficient? Well, these services are free for patients. And um, I think the benefit of it, obviously, number one, just like you do for any doctor is, well, you get free healthcare, right? Um, For many patients, they have travel or just logistical issues. So whether you're the single parent who doesn't have time to take their children, or if you're a family that has to take three buses to get to their doctor's office, um, I think OTN has created increased accessibility for physician services. I mean, I don't think any family or any individual should ever have to worry about traveling or getting to a doctor's office um, at their ease or at their convenience. It's really unfortunate that this happens, but at the same time, now OTN is empowering those communities to be able to access their doctor through a click of a button. And I think that's uh, really cool, and that's not, not just increasing accessibility to a doctor, but it's also increasing the perceived quality of care that these patients have, because now they can get to see their doctor whenever they want, and now they're more up-to-date and more in contact uh, with their physicians. On a more... Uh, more prominent note, especially what we're seeing today, is that this is really beneficial for older adults. So whether you live in your community or whether you're in a long-term care home, this is a huge problem that we're solving now, right? So so if you live in a a community setting, then for older adults, many of the people who take them to their appointments are their caregivers. Uh, This is a, now we're decreasing that burden on their caregivers. Plus, uh, we we do not want older adults to go into to clinically infected sites on a regular basis. Like what we're seeing with COVID now um, is that there's, a, there's extensive clinical transmissions of COVID-19. Plus, what's also come to light now is the flu. Uh, people are, are, are more aware of the flu and how it can spread so easily to older adults and be potentially fatal uh, for their health. So I think that's yeah. really good that we uh, have these remote accessibilities of services. And more importantly, for people who live in long-term care homes, I mean, we have people who have who, over 55% of whom have dementia, 70% or more are on over five medications, 85% need support with, the, with their activities of daily living. Community exposure for these people who are already in such vulnerable health could be disastrous. And it's definitely not something we want to have. So I think just virtual care and OTN, which Ontario is implementing now, is a great tool and a great resource for these um, individuals to use. It's, it's definitely made access to care uh, for populations up north and the indigenous communities, as well as those in low-income settings, uh, mm-hmm. have access to this care. And I think uh, virtual care has been able to mitigate and solve this issue. And during the pandemic, I think this has been a great implementation for Canada. Um, mm-hmm, for sure. But has COVID-19 resulted in an increased use of virtual care that wouldn't have been there if this pandemic didn't occur? Oh, for sure. It definitely has. I mean, um, it's really unfortunate that it's had to come down to COVID-19 for us to implement care. Um, I think uh, 
I think what we're seeing now is just an implementation of what we already had. We had the tools, we had those EMR systems, we had the software, we had the internet for a while, um, but it was just, uh, I guess, I don't know what to call it, maybe a lack of legislation, a lack of transformative attitude, but it's really good that now COVID-19 has enabled us um, to, go, to go towards this more virtual care platform. Now, what that's also bringing to light is uh, a more technology issue, especially for older physicians or even older patients, right? Um, older yeah. physicians are obviously, because now everything's moved online, there it's, it's a whole new world for, for older physicians. And I think while this is difficult, while it's hard to get accustomed and adapted to these new circumstances, it's certainly possible. Um, I mean, when the EMRs first came out, physicians did have issues with them because it was a whole new piece of technology. And it's a similar thing that's happening now. It's just more so um, being trained and being ready for this new transformative uh, wave of healthcare that's coming our way. And I feel healthcare legislation uh, is, is going to have to do a big part in that in creating those policies and regulatory uh, frameworks for enabling providers to use these virtual tools. Likewise, I feel... Yeah, I likewise, I mean, uh, same thing with patients, uh, especially for older patients. I mean, we're looking at, uh, in Canada, our, 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 it's no secret that our de- demographics are, uh, are an aging one. And a lot of the patients that we have are, are you could call them old school. So it's really critical for, for a lot of these patients to get familiar with these virtual tools. And that's where I think organizations such as Entech um, are doing a great job in enabling these patients. And I think this is also going to have to be a lot of ethical considerations in type in terms of the conversations that occur in terms of the uh, advice that is given to monitor that like uh, healthcare guidelines are uh, followed and don't go astray. Um, For sure. But will medical students require training or or a rotation for them to learn how to provide virtual care? Um, yes, they will. To be honest with you, I think they need a bit of both. Um, because if you look at it in virtual care consultations, because it is a consultation, right? So you and a patient are discussing something. Now, with that being said, the issue doesn't actually lie in providing clinical services because you're not actually providing clinical service to consultation. The issue, I feel, is actually in connecting with the patient. Um, because if you look at it, no pathology affects two patients the same way. Both of those patients have different genetic makeups, different lifestyles, different determinants of health. So the pathology will affect their lifestyles and their health in a different manner. And that's where it's up to the doctor to be able to identify and assess how pathology is affecting the patient and what the doctor uh, can do for the patient in relieving them of this distress. So I feel the issue that's going to be coming up would be a connecting, a communication or a social one. And I feel for that, rotations would definitely be important because having field experience and having real work experience as opposed to trainings uh, will be critical, especially now that we're seeing uh, virtual care sort of be a prominent uh, deliver- method of delivering healthcare. Um, yeah. yeah. So Hussein, how do you think we should go about delivering or teaching how to deliver proper care virtually? I think that is a difficult question. Um, honestly, I don't think there's any right answer for it. What we're seeing is um, a lot of patients who are a lot of providers who've already been uh, in the system long enough are now transitioning over to virtual care. Um, I don't realize how that would play out for um, a younger demographic of physicians. However, it is important that within medical schools, such as curriculums or even in hospitals, 
we do have virtual care rotations that are specifically and heavily focused on enabling and uh, accustoming these providers in, in providing virtual care. Um, I think while that's a hard job, it does require a change of cur curriculum. It, inquire, it requires uh, a new wave of healthcare policy um, on a legislative end to make sure that we're training people and physicians, and, and not just physicians, sorry, other clinicians as well, in being able to provide uh, this range of healthcare. That is true. We're going to have to put more work towards uh, implementing it. Um, but is there a decline in isn't there like a type of decline in physical interactions from not being able to uh, apply physical examination skills? Yep, for sure there is. And, and, and I think that's a really trick. And that I think is the really tricky aspect of virtual care. Um, a lot of patients, a lot of providers, they're used to those old school methods where you would sit in a doctor's office and go through everything step by step. Now, doing that same thing, but in front of a computer screen does have that effect of distancing people um, physically. Now, while that's difficult, I feel um, it, it's, it's not impossible. Um, if you look at it, there's a lot of companies uh, like, like who provide virtual care, like, like Doctors Online or uh, CareClix or Live Care or Consult a Doctor and whatnot. These companies have growing patient bases. They have a growing base of practitioners as well because we're seeing a greater demand for patients wanting to use these sorts of formats. And a, a lot of these patient bases are those who are uh, a little bit older, which shows that patients, yes, while they're, while they're losing that physical touch, they are becoming more accustomed uh, to this new, new method of healthcare delivery. And I think what's really important here is that we, we take this process very gradually. Um, I think in order to accustom people or get people used to a certain way, of life or a certain way of healthcare is through culture changes. And I think culture changes do take, do take their time, which is why uh, as healthcare practitioners, uh, we should be looking to move this very gradually and slowly uh, towards a virtual, an entirely virtual care-based platform. So that way we have the right attitudes for both practitioners and patients. <laughs> yeah. And so not being able to touch, since humans are very social animals and... Uh, the sense of feeling is one of our main uh, ways that we come to know about the world. How is this going to be changing medicine, not being able to touch our patients? Oh, it will completely, uh, it'll completely revamp it for sure. It'll, it'll be a whole, whole different experience um, when you're onto a virtual care platform. Um, I can't necessarily comment on the efficacy of how, of how good or bad it may be. I we just don't have that, that, that level of data with us. Um, today because obviously there's such a new technology and such a new platform. But um, honestly, it's, it's going to be tricky. Um, there's, there's going to be a lot of clinical research that's required. Um, we're going to need a, a whole new culture change that will enable us to get used to this new platform. I think that's, that's um, a discussion 10, 20 years down the line that we're going to be having is, is how is this necessarily changing our healthcare. I think it's really difficult uh, to predict right now. And so what are some problems virtual caregivers are facing? What are flaws of the system and where do we draw the boundaries? Um, I think uh, a lot of the flaws, as you just mentioned, would be that social aspect, that physical touch. Um, that is causing problems for many people, but at the same time, same time many people are getting used to that virtual care platform. Um, I think the place where we do need to draw the boundaries would be... Um, would be dependent on, on the patients and their demographics. So, for example, 
um, patients who um, have mental health concerns. Uh, they prefer um, an in-person space just for that sort of that construct of having a safe space to go and vent out and discuss and all their problems. So, for example, like a psychiatrist, I would I, I don't see a psychiatrist delivering care remotely uh, being as effective as it would be if they were to do it in person. So I feel the line where we have to draw would be entirely dependent on patients as well as well as some of the requirements for the providers, but mainly the patients to see if they can actually cope with this level of healthcare. We know that, for example, family doctors can go virtual. Um, they have, they are, and it's proving to be just as effective. But for, for patients with complex uh, medical diseases and pathologies, it, a virtual care platform may make it more difficult for us to actually identify and curate a care-coordinated plan for them. Um, and that's, that may be where uh, a physical interaction may be required. So I feel it's mostly just dependent on how vulnerable or how complex uh, the patient's needs are, and if a virtual care platform um, can can tend to them. And what about uh, mothers that are expecting, or uh, children that are suffering from complex diseases, or may require um, MRI scans or CT scans? How do we how do we deal with those patients with virtual care? I think I think that's a great question to ask, and and, it, and it's a difficult one for sure because. Um, diagnoses and prognoses and, and just doing MRI scans are, are something that we're so used to in person that I, I don't think we're ready for that as of right now on a virtual care platform. Maybe a few, 10, 15 years down the line, we'll have the technology that allows us to effectively diagnose these with a doctor or a clinician, not necessarily in the room, um, I think. But if we do have complex cases and if we do have uh, patients who need that physical in-person touch, uh, that only a doctor can give and not maybe a piece of technology, then I think it's important that we uh, keep those patients to an in-person format until we have a framework and, uh, and, and, and we have a level of readiness that will enable us uh, to go entirely virtual. And um, Hussein, I think another floor or a problem that I see within virtual medicine or telemedicine is confidentiality. How do we assure patients confidentiality over the internet? We know, we all know that um, hackers are out there as well as how easily it is to infiltrate um, others' information. So how is virtual care platforms or telemedicine platforms able to respect patient confidentiality? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is a big issue where even in hospitals or clinics, uh, we do see the odd report that an X thousand number of patients' um, reports have been leaked or they're medical results have been leaked, and, and these are problems that the system continues to struggle with. Um, especially as we move digital, you're absolutely right, there are hackers, medical information is worth thousands, uh, thousands of dollars to, uh, to, to many organizations for, for any number of reasons. Um, and I think that entirely, that, that entire problem of just securing patient confidentiality in accordance with PHIPAA will sort of be a discussion for the software side and, and, and the programming level of uh, EMRs and, and virtual care platforms because we do need to make sure we have those um, systems ready to prevent uh, hacks or, or unwanted leakages. For sure. And I think it's um, really great that we have virtual care as a platform because for those that are um, still afraid of COVID-19 or uh, being susceptible to contracting the disease are now given the option to receive care from the comfort of their home. 
So Absolutely. care has provided us with that ability to be comfortable from within our homes. So in that manner, um, how will virtual care foster greater continuity and deeper relationships with patients? I think that's something that um, will sort of de depend on the social construct. Um, you're absolutely right. COVID-19 has done a great job um, in showing us that um, virtual care is a, is a platform that patients and, and practitioners are, are willing to use and, and, a and a platform that is effective in delivering care. But at the same time, the conversation about around greater continuity or deeper relationships is a more social one and a, psycho and a psychosocial one. I think that'll depend entirely on the construct that we, that we as healthcare practitioners create um, around virtual care at that moment in time. Because I feel a lot of attitudes towards medicine or healthcare are, are, are primarily traditional and they're led by healthcare practitioners. But once we start to normalize uh, virtual healthcare through uh, legislation or through uh, education or, or just better, um, better, I guess, uh, awareness, uh, patients will realize that, that this is a great way to be able to connect with your uh, practitioner. And, and I think they'll, they'll sense a, a whole new wave of, comfort, of comfortability uh, when they're interacting with their doctors. For sure. And do you think virtual care will continue after the pandemic? Oh, of course. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, it, I think COVID-19 has definitely, definitely shown us that this is an effective platform. It's cost-effective, it's less time-intensive, um, and we know that it's feasible and it's effective. Doctors are doing it, specialists are doing it. The next step for, for virtual care would be telemedicine, where we can encompass that clinical services aspect into it. But other than that, I, I think um, it, it's been bang on. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Ontario government um, approve billing codes for, for virtual care. And I think uh, the governments and lawmakers have now realized that this is an effective method to use and, and a method that, that we should impose. With that being said, I feel there's, there's uh, more work required on sort of the delivery of healthcare. We need more regulations, training practitioners and enabling patients to access it. But I feel that's more so um, a, legislative, a, a legislative matter. Um, but what's important is that we've realized that virtual care is important. And I 100% do, do see it uh, continue after this pandemic. And I think those that were more um, afraid of trying virtual care now because of this pandemic have been kind of more uh, forced to try it or to take on this new um, this new platform to receive care if they want to be given the treatment that they need. And so um, yep. this, has, I mean, this is why I think uh, virtual care will continue after the pandemic and its emphasis has definitely been stronger because of COVID-19. Uh, oh, 100%. I mean, it's unfortunate, but COVID-19 in a way has marketed virtual care to a lot of uh, physicians. I like the word marketed. It definitely has. <laughs> but Hussein, uh, what does this mean for family doctors? Does this mean more patient interaction? Does it mean more time in front of their screens? Um, what does it mean for, for uh, psychologists or therapists that now cannot see their patients in person? I mean, for um, just to address your latter point, for a therapist or psychologist, it's definitely going to be a lot more tricky um, because their patients are those who need that in-person contact and that in-person sort of uh, connection to be able to, to work, work on their uh, diseases or their pathologies or whatever it is that they may, may need assistance with. Um, I think for them, it's definitely more tricky. And we do 100% need more research 
um, on for, for these professions within medicine, such as therapists or psychologists, to understand how um, their care will be affected by virtual care, and if they, and if a virtual care will ever be able to replace um, the work they're they're doing right now. But I guess, but on your former point about family doctors, uh, I think uh, many many patients who go to family doctors don't necessarily need that. Uh, in-person connection or that in-person touch and so for them um, virtual care is a great platform it's definitely more it's increased accessibility to your doctor uh, it's increased uh, data data delivery because now we sort of want to ax the facts it's this little campaign that doctors have going on and I think it's, it's a good one and I think virtual care will play right into it um, we're, we're seeing now that doctors are able to spend a lot more time with their patients and at the same time um, they have a lot more time for themselves because they've saved their commute time um, and a lot of the other miscellaneous time that they would spend on a daily basis. And, and what type of uh, psychological impacts has this had on both um, healthcare providers as well as like patients? Well, that's, that, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, for physicians, uh, it's more so susceptibility of care. Some, some physicians feel that their care may be ineffective because they haven't actually seen um, their patient in person. Um, so that's more so a perception problem. And same thing with the patients. Patients who are used to more traditional or old school methods may feel that because their doctor didn't see them in person, their care wasn't as good as it should have been or, 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 or as good as it could have been. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think both sure, of those... For sure, I think they for sure think it's being compromised because of the pandemic. Um, yeah, exactly. 100%. I mean, uh, whether in actuality that's happening or not is a question up for debate. But I think just to solve these perception problems or these susceptibility to care problems um, do lie in a culture change where uh, doctors uh, do need to deliver um, awareness around virtual care and normalize it as this new trend and this new delivery of healthcare. So how do you think doctors should normalize this um, trend of virtual care or telemedicine? I mean, I think it starts from law. I uh, think I think everything starts from a lot of law. Once everything, once it's legally uh, backed, legally supported, um, once we have laws that in, that encourage physicians to do these sorts of things, then once we have um, doctors, you know, putting posters up on their clinics, uh, on their social media sites, uh, once doctors are being trained in medical schools or in their residencies to deliver, to deliver virtual care then they'll definitely feel more involved with the format of virtual care and they'll 100% want to pass it on uh, to their patients or even to their fellow colleagues. And I think uh, that works in line with that culture shift where we've been discussing where seeing virtual care rise in prominence. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with, the, with systemic changes from, where, from the training of doctors to their actual practice. And uh, Hussein, have you received virtual care? Or do you know any family I member that has provided virtual care? I think I've received virtual care a few of my family. My grandfather received virtual care a few, a few weeks ago. Um, and I think, I think it's more so just a culture change, really. Um, I know initially, at the, initially my grandfather wasn't too comfortable with speaking over the phone, but once he had around four to five appointments, he got a lot more accustomed to it and, and, and he felt a lot more comfortable with it. And I think that that'll be the story for many patients. Definitely. That is true. Accepting this uh, change and getting used to it is something um, that will take time, but we shall get there.
And where do you see virtual care services in the overall practice of medicine? Where do you think it will be in the future? Overall, I, I mean, virtual care is the future. Um, I think it's efficient, it's low cost, it's just as effective. Um, and, 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 and we do see it growing into telemedicine to encompass those clinical components as well. Uh, I think COVID-19 and a lot of private companies who do online consultations and virtual care have shown us that it's feasible and effective uh, to, to deliver this form of care because uh, they have growing patient bases, they have uh, more providers who are willing to provide virtual care, which shows uh, accept, acceptability of, of this trend on both uh, sides of the aisle. And I think what's really important now is that we have healthcare legislation and new healthcare policies that further appropriate um, this shift towards virtual care and enable practitioners and patients uh, to use it and implement it in their daily life. Do you think virtual care should be supplemented with in-person uh, clinic examinations? Yes, for sure. Um, I think especially in the early stages when uh, virtual care will hasn't been, you know, refined and and appropriately uh, established, we do need in-person consultations just to to have checks and balances along the way. Um, I think these checks and balances become more important for patients and practitioners, such as we were discussing therapists or or, or psychiatrists whose jobs are more sort of in-person. For sure. And so, Hussein, you're going to be starting your own podcast, which is Lising Healthcare. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? Well, yeah, thank you, Sarah. Uh, using healthcare, it's, uh, it's again, it's just this podcast idea that I had uh, primarily in response to COVID. Um, and, the, and the goal of the podcast will be to encompass a wide range of medical and healthcare issues. And I primarily do want to have a student and a, and, uh, a youth-led perspective on it, just so we can get some fresh ideas on the board and leverage the opinions of experts to make sure that we have a diverse um, array of ideas and perspectives around healthcare. Oh, that's fantastic. And when do you expect to launch the first episode? I think it's coming in a few weeks. Um, After the few weeks, I'd love to have you uh, on the podcast. For sure. I would appreciate that. Um, And so it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast to talk about virtual care and to inform us about the Ontario Telemedicine Network. It's definitely, I think virtual care is great. It's revolutionized medicine and will continue to do so. As you said, it is the future. And um, thank you, Hussein, for this wonderful discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time, Sarah. All the best. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yes, of course, Hussein. Thank you. All right. See ya. See you. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to like it and share it with your friends and family members. For further information, feel free to visit our website, The Pure Post, read our articles, and visit our merchandise at PureMed. The links are available in the description. We here at PureMed are ecstatic to bring you exciting new content, week in and week out. Don't forget to subscribe to stay updated. We cannot wait to see our new and familiar faces here back each episode. Thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy. Hi, I'm your host, Leah Sarapier, and welcome to my podcast, PMED. 
I am a Canadian medical student, human rights, global health, and social justice advocate, and just an ordinary human being. PureMed's podcast is not affiliated nor part of any organization or foundation. PureMed's mission is serving humanity, connecting people, stories, and places. It is a platform that gives a voice to the voiceless, an ear to the helpless, and seeks to empower youth, physicians, and leaders far and wide. Thank you.